Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Chasing Heroin on this day. Today's episode, we have Joe Schrank, who is the co-host of Rehab Confidential. If you guys remember, we had Amy Dresner on a few shows ago. So this is her co-host on that show, and he's also a social worker. And this episode is a little bit different in that we don't necessarily like do a deep dive into a specific certain event. It is timely in February. We were actually speaking to him the day before his 25th sober date, which is amazing. So we were talking to him right before that happened, but we wanted to get Joe on the show for his expertise in other areas. He's an advocate for policy change that would benefit the you know rehab system on a, on a broader level. And he's also an advocate. I kind of went into the show thinking he was a harm reduction guy, and he sort of is, but he's more of an advocate for allowing people to have their own process as they come into recovery and allowing individuals to self-determine, am I an addict, am I an alcoholic? What does that look like for me? And this idea that getting better is also success and not necessarily abstinence and, and there you go and 30 days of treatment and you're done forever. And he really makes a solid case for it. And even for myself as somebody that's an abstinent 12 step proponent, he really made a good case for that, for, for allowing that to be a process. And I do want to point out, he is an abstinent AA 12 step guy himself, but his, his goal is to make space for people to recover in ways that, that vary from that, from that path. The other thing I want to include, and this is such a bummer is our audio literally like as we were starting in the studio, some guy fired up a chainsaw, it sounded like, like right outside the studio. So Kim and I had to move rooms into a room of my studio where we're actually doing a little construction. And I think it was the acoustics. She and I sound a little, the the quality just isn't great. So if you're new to this show, please know that's not the norm. And I kind of had the option to, to tune up Joe's audio and make it real dialed in and clear or make ours real dialed in and clear. And obviously you guys hear us all the time. I thought the message of the guest was a little bit uh, more important. So bear that in mind as you move through this episode. I think you guys are really gonna like it. He's got a great take. There's some really great information and he's such an advocate for compassionate treatment. So thank you guys so much as always. Please let me know what you guys think. Okay, guys, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Chasing Heroin on this day. My name is Janine. I'm an addict in recovery. My sobriety date is January 15th, 2015. My name is Kimberly Walker. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. My role on the podcast is to ask Janine and our guests questions that listeners may have and change um, people's perspectives on addiction and recovery. So today we're super excited. If you guys recall, we had Amy Dresner on a few weeks ago. She is the co-host of Rehab Confidential, and today we have the other host of Rehab Confidential, Joe Schrank, with us. Joe Schrank is a clinical social worker and person in long-term recovery. He is founder of TheFix.com and frequent contributor to Huffington Post, Salon, Daily Beast, and Fix News. He is an advocate for the entire spectrum of how people improve, improve in recovery. He has two boys who have never seen him drink. So welcome, Joe. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. How are you guys? We're good. Great. Yeah, thanks a lot for being here. 
Yeah, we're good. We're sitting on, I was telling Joe off air, we've had to move. We're sitting on the ground on like yoga mats. So hopefully my knees and ankles will take up. Um, okay, so as you guys know, the premise of the show is that we get into something from our guests, addictive alcoholic history and versus where they are now. So, but with today's guest, today's guest is a little special. Joe is a longtime advocate for policy change and reform in the addiction treatment community. And so we're gonna talk to him a little bit about that too, but in keeping with our premise, uh, Joe, do you have anything that you could share that maybe would let somebody else know like, okay, this guy was an idiot too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, I think if, look, I think that that it's important to remember we're not our addictions and we're not our behaviors and we're active in addiction. With that said, uh, sure, I have lots of things that (laughs) didn't go as planned, shall we say. Um, You know, and a lot of my drinking, and I've been sober for a long time, almost 24 years. So I was still a young guy when I um, got sober, which is one of the interesting things that I hear all the time. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm still young. Yeah, you know, I mean, and I think, um, I think that paying attention to red flags is one of the important things for young people, um, and especially young guys. Um, I have no reservations as a guy, as a father of two boys, as a football coach, as talking to young guys for 20 years. Um, I have no reservation saying guys are dumb asses. That's a dumb, <laughs> like, like the number one, I hear this all the time. What's the, the diagnosis? Young and dumb. That's the diagnosis. Yeah. So, and that does not exclude me, you know, and that does not right. exclude my children. So I don't feel um, badly, um, you know, and one of my, my older boys, very, you know, he's headed to medical school and it's like, I heard that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's great. It's great. But it's also like, really, doctor, well, can the boxer shorts get in the hamper? How about that? Can we do, (laughs) can we do any, can we, before you put somebody's life in your hands, can we maybe do something along those lines? Um, But anyway, so, so look, I mean, you guys had asked for one of the embarrassing stories and I don't have any reservations about saying it. I was a very, a very large drunk kid. Uh, and there's a lot of enablers with that culturally, right? You know, boys will be boys and, you know, you're an athlete and, you know, this kind of stuff. And so um, it's very easy to normalize that, right? It's very easy to look at that as I'm not doing anything that nobody else is doing. Um, but I kind of always had this like inkling, like this is not right. Like this, yeah. <laughs> this is not, and I, I kind of in, in knew that I was pouring alcohol on depression. Um, I mean, I didn't know it in those terms. I knew that something was not right. You know, I knew that if I wasn't drinking, I was, I felt like I was sitting waiting to see the principal, you know, just that sort of uneasiness, the, the, um, uh, uh, you know, the anxiety, all of that. <clears throat> So um, this one particular evening, I was at a party at USC, fight on. Don't know if there's any Trojans out there, but. Is that where you went to school? You went to USC? I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, 
Uh, and they actually have a really great recovery program on campus, which is so baffling to me because that's not what I knew at USC. <laughs> like, I did not know. <laughs> no, it's cool. I've been to their meetings. I was like the fat dad at the meeting. I was, you know, and I couldn't believe I couldn't believe how many kids were were coming to this, and it was great. I was very happy to see it. But anyway, so one night at USC, and somehow I forced a young lady into my room, and. Um, uh, you know, I mean, the nature will take its course with young people. That's how that goes. Um, and I kind of hit that tipping point, that moment of this could go either way, right? And so I vomited, I don't know, two gallons of beer on her. I have no oh idea. Oh. I don't know. And she was understandably pissed, <laughs> which... <laughs> I mean, talk about this is a horrible story for me. What about her? I don't, I don't even know where she. Yeah. Know. But she, so, but I do remember that um, she was she kind of was hitting me a little bit, and she said, "You know, you're a. I can't believe what a disgusting pig you are. You look at these curly fries. They're still curly. You don't even oh, chew." Oh my goodness. That's you actually know, pretty which funny. Was, which was sort of the crowning jewel. You don't even chew. <laughs> yeah, I guess I don't, you know, I mean, it was just, and look, it's a, it's a, it is a fraternity hijinks story, but it was a moment. It was a, yeah, this is, this is gross. This, well, obviously, you know, you remember it years later, you know, it obviously stuck with you, right? Yes. No, I remember. <laughs> yeah. I remember it years later. It stuck with me because it was one of those, you know, moments where, you know, you kind of have the insight of this isn't just recreation. This isn't just partying, you know? So, so there you go. There you go. So any, don't, don't be embarrassed. Don't, don't dip in right. shame. You know, we've all right. been yeah, there. Right. And so where are you, where are you now? So tell us about the fix and the, the fix.com. Tell it, tell our people what that is. You know, it's interesting. The fix.com is a website all about addiction and recovery. And, um, you know, it's one of, and again, I mean, look, I think that just because you get sober doesn't mean you stop fucking things up. And so right. it was this, <laughs> and I was living in New York at the time and I pitched this idea to some serious New York media types, right? So not just a blog. I pitched this thing like, look, there's 20 million people in recovery. They need information. Why is there no website for, for this? And there wasn't at the time. There's a bunch of them now. Um, and so that, it kind of took root and it went really well. Ultimately, I was fired from my own creation, which is one of the more, um, uh, <laughs> like, like the guy who started the Rolling Stones got fired. So I just sort of think, okay, <laughs> but um but I'm glad it exists for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, I would still love to have a voice in the editorial because I, you know, of course I think I can do it better. But the original intention of the fix was to incite dialogue about this problem. It wasn't to give answers. It wasn't to mandate a specific road. It wasn't to say X is better than Y. It was talk about this, right? Okay. Just like talk about this problem. This problem is pervasive. It's everywhere in the community and people need to diminish the shame with, as long as the shame is driving the bus, we're not really gonna get anywhere. And when shame, like with the HIV crisis, diminishing the shame was a game changer, 
right? There was a time when people said, oh, they, they died of cancer. And it's right. like, no, they died of AIDS, right? And so until people could actually have conversations with friends or family or clergy or neighbors or whatever their community was, it wasn't going to change. And I think that it's the same thing here. So that was the original intention of the fix. Um, okay. Yeah, I love that you say that and you talk about that. And this leads me to something that, that I've <laughs> thought about here on the podcast. And, and by the way, if you chose TED Talk, I highly recommend and you said something in your TED talk that, that I loved. You talked about the tradition of anonymity in AA. And uh-huh. you said what that actually ends up manifesting as is secrecy. And, yeah. and so I wanted to ask you, where have you landed with, because I just, your last podcast, you mentioned AA. I talked uh-huh. about it here. Where yeah. did you end up landing with that for yourself with your podcast? And like, how are you navigating those waters? Because I think about that too. Well, look, it's always difficult for me to navigate waters, right? Because I wear a few different hats, right? One of the right. hats I wear is I'm just a dude. I'm just a dude in AA. I'm a 12-stepper. Um, and then the other hat that I navigate is that I am a trained clinical social worker. So social right. work involvement is very, very, very different than uh, 12-step work, right? right. So, you know, like being a guy in AA is not being a social worker and vice versa, right? So being a social worker is not being a guy in AA. So it's very hard to sort of, it's hard for me to like delineate, well, which hat am I wearing, right? So it's very hard for other people. I always recommend people, um, look, 12-step is a very viable option for many, 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 many people, myself being one of them. It does not mean it's the only option for people. And it does not mean that it is the only way that people get better. Um, It is a way that people get better to be sure. And I think it's so prevalent in the culture that people need to at minimum go on a reconnaissance mission to just have an open mind and see if it's something that could be a fit for you. Um, With that said, uh, my anonymity, the cat is out of the bag a long time ago. (laughs) it's like okay what am i protecting here um and when i want when i advocate for policy change or reform or for different ways that people are going to get better it doesn't make any sense to you know like dance around the issue like that never really made any sense to me and one of the things i said there's this movie that i'm in it's called the anonymous people i don't know if you guys have seen that Check it out. It's on YouTube, I'm sure, but okay. it's all about um, it's all about this issue. It's all about anonymity. It's all about you know, anonymity is a good thing for sure for some people, right? It helps them take the first step. But that mm-hmm. that ship sails, in my opinion. And I said in the movie, you know, when 30 people stand in front of a church smoking, who's anonymous? Right. You know, right. where, like, yeah, where's the big secret here? You know, and, and so I think that that's one of the things that um, I don't know that 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 standard of 1935 applies to today. Um, right. You know, and I also think, look, people can advocate. I've been to a million different. I've been to involved with Parkinson's causes. I've been involved with HIV. I don't have any of those afflictions. So you can you can you can advocate for this without disclosing your personal thing if that's your choice, right? I don't think that, you know, you have to. 
Um, That's true. Like Kim is actually not in recovery. Kim is not an alcoholic, but she's here on the show doing this and promotes it. Yeah. You know. Yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, look, I don't think you have to wear a bra to sell one. You just, you know, I mean, there's lots right. of things that people, there are lots of things that people do. Um, right. But with that said, look, I'm, I'm very respectful of people's anonymity. If that's a choice. I'm also, I just think it should be an option to be like, ah, I don't know, what, you know, whatever. I, you know, I don't drink. I've gone to AA meetings for 25 years. Um, I'm happy to talk to anybody about it, especially young guys. Um, uh, you know, and, and unless you put that into the world, I don't know how people find you exactly. She said that once. She said, well, it's, it's a program of promotion or a program of attraction, but you can't attract anybody to it if no one knows you're in it. Correct. And I thought, well, that's a good way to say that, you know, because that's kind of why I'm you know, why I'm out there and doing that and doing this, you know, and, and doing the whole show. Yeah. 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 Joe, you talked about that, that, the, the incident with the curly fries gave you pause. I'm guessing, and I could be wrong, that was not the last time you drank or was it? And what, what did that kind of look like? No, because no. not just partying anymore. Right. Well, it was not the last time I drank. Um, I'm sure it went on for a few more years. I think it got to be a point where I just couldn't feel like I felt anymore. And yeah. I ended up in therapy and they, you know, they started talking about medications and antidepressants and so on and so forth. And, you know, and a lot of it was just sort of the underperforming. I get called in the professor's office and they would um, say, you know, you're so bright. Why are things, why is this not going well? You know, they would say that and I would say, I would just do the typical alcoholic thing and blame them. And I would just be like, I don't know, man, I guess you're not a very good teacher. I don't know. You know, like, <laughs> like just like, I don't know. I, there's something wrong with you, I guess. Um, but I think that it got to be, it literally was like this experiment because when they gave me antidepressants, they're like, well, you can't drink on this. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. What are we going to do about that? Because, you know, that's one of the things that helps makes me feel better. And so it is one of those chicken egg kind of arguments of, but the alcohol makes me feel better, but it makes me worse. You know, like when, yeah. you know, it's like scratching a mosquito bite where, okay, that feels great. Oh, that was the worst thing I could have done. Um, right. And so it literally just started like, okay, I'll give this a try. I didn't make any big announcements. I didn't make any um, uh, commitments to, I'm gonna stay, I'm never gonna drink again. There was nothing like that. It literally was in the truest sense of day at a time. Like, okay, mm -hmm. let's just get through today. And I could not believe how much better I felt almost immediately, oh. you know, yeah. almost immediately. It was like, whoa, this is what alcohol does. <laughs> You know, yeah. you know, it was one of one of those things. So as it turns out, um, following advice, not drinking, getting a sponsor, going to meetings, having a therapist, those are all really helpful things. Right. <laughs> like those are all there. There is a truism about that. So. And so it just stuck for you. You tried it. And then now we're having this conversation 24 years later. So you just have the one sobriety date. I had the one sobriety date. I was very, wow. very, very lucky. Um, one of the things I think that's so important for young adults is a peer group. And I landed through no effort or fault of my own, uh, just 
lucky, I guess, with a really great peer group, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, I, we, I lived in New York City at that point. We had a lot of fun. We, you know, we still went out, which young people want to do. Now I'm like, fuck that. This is their CNN. I don't right. care. I'm like, I'm not right. going anywhere. Um, but, you know, what? hockey games what? and, you know, everything uh-huh. else. And, and so we had, I think that's really important. I think it's really yeah. important to find people who are solid in recovery and to be part of a group where the social norm is to stay sober. Um, you said something in your TED talk that I loved. I wrote it down and started. I and mean, I think I'm going to make it a quote for our Instagram. Addiction is stabilized by community and experience. I love that. And that's exactly what you're talking about here. You know, it, exactly. it sounds like yeah. Yeah. that community was available for you, you know, in that moment. It was. I mean, uh, the first time I walked into a meeting, you know, I had this really great therapist at Hazelden um, in New York, and she sent me to this meeting. And the first time I walked in and I was like, wait a minute, these guys look like they could have gone to USC. What's going on here? You know, the first time it was like, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm very confused by this potential of having friends. You know, um, it was life changing. It was life changing yeah. because when you go to one, you'll go to another. When you give out your number and they're like, hey man, we're at, we're at uh, Rhineland or Regency or, you know, whatever the meetings are in the neighborhood. Um, it's very different than trying to muddle through that alone. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I have another question about your TED talk. This is just my, my um, curiosity. You said mm-hmm. Fox calls you after Whitney Houston died to comment. Yeah. And they, they asked you to not mention that she was an addict. So I'm just curious, what did you end up saying? Do you remember? What I ended up saying was, uh, I have the same empathy for Whitney Houston and her family. Uh, It's the same empathy as if she died of cancer, right? Like treatment does not always work for all people. There are people who die of this regardless of their efforts. There are people who, um, so if uh, what I was saying was um, she had five rounds of chemo and she passed away, it's the same feeling for me. You know, um, it's really awful. It's really sad. It's horrible for her family. It's horrible for her fans, you know, all those kinds of things, but it doesn't, you know, they were like, well, don't say she's a drug addict. And I was like, what am I supposed to say? (laughs) Also, they were calling you to comment. Totally. I mean, and that is one of the things I said to the producer was, well, then why did you call me? Right. (laughs) What do you think I'm going to say? I mean, it's not a secret. She was all over the press four years with this problem Um, and lots and lots of people knew I mean the cat was out of the bag and so that's kind of that's kind of my take on it you know and that's sort of one of the general themes of all of my work as a social worker is that addiction drug use dependencies whatever you want to call it it is primarily a health issue it's not a crime Um, you know it's not um, it's not behavioral management puzzles you know it is a health issue and until we start treating it as such meaning look people who have this issue and we say it all the time addictions a disease okay if it's a disease then why aren't we treating them like patients we have to treat people like patients not like criminals right so so to that end are there any politicians in particular that you've feel have been receptive to this message? Like, I know that that's something that you advocate for is actual policy change. 
Mm-hmm. Is there anybody that you think has been the most receptive, and especially now with your podcast, now that you're able to kind of get into that world, who would you say has been receptive and that you feel maybe has the best shot of putting some policy forth that would be helpful? You know, I, I'm always hopeful, right? I think that mm-hmm. it gets to be a very, very complex problem, right? right. I, and I think that we've, we have minimized it with messages like just say no, or drug addicts are losers, or, you know, those sorts of pop culture, the D.A.R.E. program, you know, those kinds right. of things. It gets to be, it gets to be very, very, very layered. And politicians are, um, you know, they're very hard to talk to. <laughs> and it's very hard to get a straight answer. Cory Booker, who's this, who's the senator from New Jersey, has always been really open about it. He understands the problem. Sometimes people's hands are tied. They can't do what they can't do. You know, we're hopeful yeah. with the Biden administration. They just, uh, he signed an executive order to eliminate private prisons, which I think is really helpful. The whole idea that there's a profit margin from putting a, someone in a cage, really? You know, you're, so you're incentivized to have these low level drug charges and people serving time on them when that's not what they need. And that's not good for them. It's not good for the family. So they got rid of that, which is great. That's a hopeful thing. But one of the things I think I've learned is that um, same sex marriage was not a light switch. It was lots of little things that changed to get to that particular point. The first thing that changed was that uh, same sex partners could be in a hospital room when somebody was dying. Right, because it used to be, well, who are you? Right. So you're not their husband, you're not their wife, you're not, you know, if you couldn't have any sort of legal standing, you didn't have the ability to make medical decisions. So it was lots of little things that changed that, and so I've I've come to accept that it's going to be lots of little things that will change drug policy. So I was very happy to see that from the Biden administration. I think politicians in general are. I don't know. We have this guy in San Francisco, Scott Weiner, who was on our podcast. And, um, you know, he's always like, well, you know, we want to help tourism. So let's keep bars open until 4 a.m. I'm like, okay, what good thing's going to happen from two till four, right? <laughs> Nothing. Nothing good's right. going to happen. So who's going to pay for that? Like, who's going to pay right. for the additional police calls, the additional ER visits, you know, yes, I guess you're helping the tourism industry, but what about the community? So I think that it gets to be this game of, um, you know, you move one puzzle piece and something else happens. To date, I, nobody has run on this, right? Nobody has said, I'm running on a recovery agenda to help people in recovery, I, to, to help the 20 million Americans who say they're in recovery and to help the families and the people they know, which means all Americans have this problem. Right. right. So 20, 20 million of anything is, is something. If 20 right. million Americans said, we're not voting for you if you don't talk to us, then they would. <laughs> right. Um, and one of my big issues is always the taxation of alcohol. I guess it's, it's just absurd that, you know, your right as an American is to get drunk on the cheap. Right. I don't know about that. I'm going to say it's. Is alcohol taxed less? I didn't actually know that than like other products. It's very lowly taxed. So for example, in the state of California, the last tax rate was 1993, right? Um, I don't know, what were you doing in 1993? Um, listening to Nirvana, right. you know, things have changed. Right. So, right. Yeah. Um, and one of my encourage, one of the things that I encourage when I am able to talk to these people is why can't we have a five cent recovery tax on beer? 
right? Everybody, everybody could go to treatment. We got treatment on demand, right? Five cents, five cents for the damage that it causes. You know, have you been to Safeway in San Francisco? They charge you 10 cents for a bag because right. it damages the environment. They have to dispose of it, you know, all these different right. things. And I'm not opposed to it. It's like, look, and bring your own bag. You don't want to pay the 10 cents. You pay a tax on your car because it pollutes the air. Why are you not paying right. a tax on a product that causes so much damage and to help people clean up that damage? So in other words, yeah. um, let's just say five cents on a unit of beer, uh, wine, 25 cents on distilled spirits. We have, and this is one of the reasons that I'm such a pariah in the rehab industry is because it goes away largely. <laughs> Right. Right. So the, pri yeah. the private for-profit rehab business, it shrinks dramatically when people would have a public option when it's like, hey, I'm really fucked up. Great. Well, we have very well-funded detox. Come on right. in. Right. Like, do, you, do you actually get pushback from, from people in recovery, like not wanting to elevate your platform? Like, on oh, yeah. Like oh, do you? Oh. oh, sure. 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 Yeah, I mean, look, I think that any system that is comfortable, right? So any system that likes the status quo is going to push back on change and they're right. going to push back on reform. You know, rehab is a $50 billion a year industry. Um, it's largely based on recidivism. You know, there's a three to 5% success rate of people being stable or being abstinent after recovery uh, treatment. There is no area of healthcare that rests on that. Diabetes would never say, well, we're successful. 5% uh, of the time, we're good, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> or yeah, that's, that's cancer, true. cancer can't do that. Um, you know, spina bifida is constantly lowering their rates of incidence. Um, spina bifida is one in 200,000 births. Addiction is one in 10. So- right. You know, to have a system that just sort of swirls around in futility and thinking culturally that we're going to incarcerate our way out of this, mm -hmm. it's not going to happen. If it were going right. to, it would have. So, Joe, you've talked about how rehab can be a life-changing experience, but there are limitations. Can you talk about those limitations and how going to rehab on its own to stay clean can be an issue, especially because you just mentioned it's successful for three to 5% of the people that go through it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the first issues is that nobody can clearly define success, right? So mm -hmm. success is defined as abstinence in perpetuity and you go to AA, then very few people are gonna be successful. Um, I right. define success as any positive change. And I think that it's very much a process <clears throat> and I think it's very much, um, uh, don't give up is one of the things I always tell people is that, you know, okay, if you used again, are you using less? Are things getting better? Are you using, have you used something that's not as harmful? One of the things I take a lot of shit for is for people, for, is recommending for some people to try cannabis replacement, right? Because a lot of their problems go away right? When they do. Um, you know, so anyway, with the research that we know of people who have a medical cannabis card, they're, they report that they're drinking significantly diminishes or extinguishes. That's mm -hmm. going to improve their lives, right? Is it sober? Depends on your definition. Um, mm -hmm. Is it 
improvement. And this is where I get in trouble between being a 12-step guy and being a social worker. Yeah. So yeah. lives, so so lives improving is a goal of social work. Um, so look, I am all for abstinence. I am an abstinent person. I, I support abstinence. I'm ha I sponsor young guys, you know, trying to get to that point. Uh, not everybody will. And so I think that one of the things that we have to do with the rehab world is to expand the definition of success. And we have mm -hmm. to stop selling 30-day acute care as the answer. 30-day acute care, residential care is probably the best it's going to be is a leg up on the horse, right? You're supposed yeah. to ride the horse for the next 60 years. Um, right. <laughs> and so, you know, so I think that we need to start framing this as this is a chronic problem. We can all, we can't just address it in acuity, right? It's the same thing with diabetes. Um, we would never say to a diabetic, well, come back when we have to amputate your foot, right? Like, why do we want people with addiction and such severe problems when they can start addressing the problem earlier, they can have fewer consequences, even if it doesn't look like the ideal of never drinking again. Um, right. And so I think improvement matters. And I think that the offering of treatment <clears throat> um, needs to be more diverse. Um, mm -hmm. Because at the moment, most rehabs are AA indoctrination camps. Yeah, you know, most, uh -huh. most rehabs, the treatment plan is browbeat people with AA. Um, that's not really treatment, that's gay conversion therapy, right? Mm -hmm. That's not, that's not um, educating people, that's not how you're gonna manage your mental health comprehensively, not just your substance misuse, but lots of different things. Um, and just to give you some context and some example, I've seen lots of people improve who are not, they are not sober, sometimes they wanna take the next step. So in other words, I had this young guy who was a heroin user. Okay, we eliminated the heroin. He says to me, well, I'm smoking a lot of weed. And I said, well, okay, um, you know, what do you think about that? Uh, well, I'm not sure. Okay. And then, and then he, <laughs> he says, I'm gonna take calculus this semester. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, okay, you're gonna have to smoke less weed or no weed. <laughs> Like I, I've taken, I've taken calculus. You got to go, you got to do the problem sets. You got to do this. You got to practice. It's like learning a musical instrument, right? You can't be stoned and go to calculus. You can be stoned and go to movie appreciation class. It's not what you're talking about. So the point being is this young guy's life grew from injectable drug use to taking calculus, but it grew in steps. It didn't go in 30 days of Drugs are bad. Drugs are the worst thing in the world. Drugs are, I'm a, I'm a drug, anti-drug warrior. You know, those kinds of things are not really successful for enough people for that to be the only offering. Yeah. Um, and so I think, I wish I had all the answer. <laughs> I know yeah. that this is not nearly successful enough. And I know that people, um, look, it's a chronic problem and chronic problems have to be dealt with in a chronic way where there's management of the problem and there is remission of the problem. There's not cure or solution to the problem. The solution is in the process and finding your process and in any individual's process, it might look different than a lot of people. And, um, you know, I, one of the things I say 
a lot is Pope Pius X. Uh, and this is where I get all dad and boring when I start giving history lectures, but I can't help it. I'm 52 now. So <laughs> Pope Pius X issued a papal encyclical that said evangelicalism is a sin. You know, that other people will find their relationship with God. It may or may not look like our relationship with God. And so part of right. my goal as a social worker is to help people find their relationship with recovery, whether it looks exactly like my relationship with recovery or not. You know, so there are 700 million Hindus in the world. I don't think they're going to become Catholic because I am. And I, right. don't think, <laughs> I don't think that all the people, everyone in need of mental health help is going to do what I do, if they would like to know what I do, I'm happy to share that with them. But if they say right. that's not for me, my response is, okay, then let's find what is for you. Not, right. you're not ready and come back when you're ready. And if you can't, if you're not gonna pray, you can't be in our club. Like it's just, it just doesn't make sense to me at all. That's fascinating for me to hear because as, as such an abstinence driven person, because that was what I was told. And now I've yeah. been fully absent years mm. but you're right hearing you say it that way it's but but my journey was such a process I relapsed a lot and mm -hmm. my mom is a social worker also and she used to say that to me she would say look you had more good days than bad days this year you did I understand you relapsed twice and you reset your date for your 12 step I get that but like of a 12 month year you were clean and sober 10 months this year with some, and, she, and, and I remember telling you, that's the best you've done. Mm -hmm. um, and and mm -hmm. it was a process for me too, you know, and she used to tell me that it's not a pass fail. Mm -hmm. It's a, are you getting better over time? Yeah. Um, and I do think that that's such like an empathetic solution oriented way to share with somebody. Right, because then if you do relapse or however you frame it, then you're not, I'm horrible, I suck, I'm a piece of shit. You're, okay, now what have I learned from that past experience? Okay, that maybe doesn't work for me or I need to tweak it a little bit or I, for lack of a better word, sorry. <laughs> I need to change it a little right, bit. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a, yeah, there might be a different, a better word choice there. Um, I, look, I agree. You know, I, I totally agree. I think improvement does matter. Um, yeah. You know, I think that people need to understand and, and I, what I hope I communicate to people, whether they're clients or whether they're, you know, it's an organic thing is that um, people who keep trying are successful, right? You know, people who keep trying, there are people, my mother says, oh, I, I, it took me 10 times to quit smoking. I'm like, all right. And I'm from the generation, I'm 52. I'm from the generation where pregnant women smoked. Like, it seems unconscionable. It seems unconscionable. And my mother's like, oh, we all, oh, well, well, everybody smokes. I'm like, okay. Well, I mean, so if we can get rid of that practice out of the culture, we can get rid of other practices out of the culture. The point being is when people keep trying to improve and they keep trying to stabilize in their recovery and they keep trying to define their recovery um, for themselves, they will ultimately be successful. When people get into the mindset of, I didn't, I can't, I'm a piece of shit, or they shame spiral, that's where people really get into trouble. And that's where people are not able to find um, a reasonable solution for themselves. I think that one of the things that you are, and I'm sure, um, well, one of the things they beat into your head in social work training is the individual has the right to self-determine. 
right? Mm -hmm. Even if the people around them don't like the decisions that they've made, yeah, they right. still have that right. And so if somebody says, and I've said it a lot of times, well, let's call your parents and tell them you're a drug user. We can refer them to a family therapist and they can talk about their feelings about that, but we can't make you do something that you don't want to do or you're not ready to do, or we can't make you go as far, you know, but if somebody says to me, I'm not ready for a marathon, but I'll try a 10 K. I'm not going to say, come back when you want to do a marathon. I'm going to say, great, right. great. let's get your 10. Let's, let's do your 10 K plan. Let's see how that's, yeah. let's see how that goes. Let's see if we can, you know, my, my initial goal is always extinguishing potentially lethal dose drug use, which is right. why I'm a fan of cannabis. I don't use the stuff, but I'm a, I'm a fan of it for people because it is, it is something and they won't, you can't overdose, you know, I mean, yeah, you know, there's, and then I'm not saying there's not problems with it. <laughs> And I'm not right. saying that at all. I'm not one of the, oh, I, you know, cannabis is a miracle. I don't, I'm not in that camp. I'm in the, if you've gone from injectable heroin to medicinal cannabis, victory, you know, right. that's, that's a triumph. And we, and, um, and I don't think we should thumb our nose at people who are willing to do that, but they're not willing to be totally sober because they could reach a point where they are willing to be totally sober um, or they could, and look, there's not a family in the world who would not take their, the person back who they lost to an overdose if they were a medicinal cannabis user. Nobody's gonna say, oh no, we prefer them to be dead if they're not gonna be drug free. Yeah, that's actually So, um, and it's a very, uh, I understand the complexity and the dichotomy of that messaging. Um, uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> believe me, I get it. And, and you know, look, I, I mean, I have a, this young sponsee and uh, he, uh, he loves AA and he's going to meetings and he's doing great and he doesn't want to get, you know, all this stuff. I'm not going to say, oh, well, you should try harm reduction. I'm going to say, well, you're doing great, buddy. Let's just keep it going. I think it's just, I think that we as humans have to respect the diversity of the human experience. Um, yeah. You know, there was, um, God, and these kids, I'm always just amazed at how nonchalant they are about being gay. You know, in the, in, when I was young, it was still kind of a secret and, oh my God, it was this big deal. And now these kids are just like, they don't care. I'm like, okay, well, great. Yeah. I'm glad that we have accepted that as part of the human experience and that that is some people are, that's their, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't even like them. I don't even like the idea that that's their choice. I, you know, because it, it just kind of feels like if they could make a different choice, they, they should. I'm more like, uh, if that's the choice between mutually consenting adults, good for them. I don't know. Like, what do right. I, you know, I'm divorced. I've had a million girlfriends. Fuck if I know. I don't know how to make these things work. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. But anyway, the point yeah. being is, I think that we have to also expand the definition of recovery and be more accepting of people that are coming at this from a different way and and in different roads, and it doesn't have to look like our own. Um, yes, you know it can um, certainly. And look and do and make the, whoever's listening do not misunderstand. If you are if you are on the abstinence road, you are on a viable road of recovery. You know, and if it's going well, stick with it. 
And if it's yes. not, don't don't jump ship, right? Like yeah. like look for other ways and look for other roads and look for other paths. America was founded on we the people, but at the time we the people meant we the white male landowning people. Right? right. Now we know that we the people <laughs> is a bunch of other different things. Women, right. people of color, gay, straight, whatever it is. Um, we the recovering people can't be we the abstinent in AA. It can't be. Right. Yeah. You know, that's that's not it's not compassionate, it's not empathic, it's not effective. Right. And, and so I think that that's one of the one of my big messages uh, yeah. from a macro level in social work. Um, so uh, one of the things that Kim wanted to ask you about was you specialize in interventions. Yeah. Yeah. So what is that um, process like? How would a family know this is a good um, route to take for my loved one or I guess yeah. just more information? Well, I think that interventions look like a bunch of different things, right? And then, so I think it's very, it's very different for every family. First of all, I think every addiction is different. I think it's as individual as your thumbprint. So, um, you know, and, and every family system is different, right? So there aren't really hard and fast truths about interventions. They almost never look like the show. That's one of the things I tell people. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> if you've seen that show that always has the same story arc, you know, they're in a gas station and then they were, oh, but look when they played Little League. <laughs> and then the yeah. mother reads, then the mother <laughs> reads a letter and the mother cries and they say, okay, I'll go. Right. It, it almost never looks like that. So an intervention, I think, I think is oftentimes a process, not an event. And the process okay. might be, um, it could look like a bunch of different things. I mean, one of the things I'm not—I'm not of the mind. I'm not of the cutoff that you're banished from the kingdom because you're a bad drug addict person. I'm not of that mindset. Um, I am of the mindset of you need to make choices in your life, but that comes with responsibilities in your life. And so, other people don't have to finance what you're doing. <laughs> you know, that's always a big one with me. Right. Like, well, you know, <laughs> stop, stop the money. Like, yes, you can be a drug user if you want, but other people don't have to pay for that. You know. <laughs> um. So sometimes it's a sometimes it's chipping away at things. Sometimes there is an actual sit down at a meeting. I'm more of the problem solving from a group perspective of what's going to help this family. You know, what okay. do we need to do to help this family? And sometimes that could be, I mean, look, it could be a six month bank. You know, it doesn't necessarily um, have to be uh, the, the surprise. Like I'm always surprised when they're surprised. Like really, you didn't right. know that people, <laughs> what, what's going on? You didn't know you were affecting the people in you your didn't life. Know that, oh, you didn't know that people were upset. Okay, well, you know, and, and so it's like, well, what, Sometimes the question is very simple. What does this family, what does this family want to do and what can we do, right? Okay. You can, you know, you can put on financial restrictions. You can set boundaries. Can't come here if you've been drinking, sorry. You know, we love you. We want you to be a part of this. If you're going to come to Thanksgiving, you have to be sober. And if you can't do it, we're going to ask you to leave. Um, you know, those kinds of things. And so sometimes I think it's, it's a situation where it, really 
an intervention is ultimately for the family, right? Mm -hmm. It's great if the person goes to treatment. It's great if they change their lives. The family needs to feel like they have done everything that they can do so that the consequences of the individual's life choices are not like, we should have done this. We should have done that. Why didn't we do this? Why didn't we do that? You know, it really is about making the whole system more functional and, and having the system. And when the system's more functional, the individual will be more functional. There's no question. Yeah. Um, so, how do we that. so that the individual is, I don't want to use the word forced, but forced to look at their behavior and go, if I keep acting this way, maybe my family's not going to respond in the way that they have been, which is going to change possibly how I act or how I think or what I choose to do. Correct. Correct. Because we can only change ourselves. We can't change other mm -hmm. people. You know, right. we can't, we can change how we respond to things. We can change our, um, how we act differently. Um, you know, and I get, Look, my frustration mentions is always, well, did you tell them? I did. I told them drinking's bad. I told them, you know, well, did you tell them that the traps are bad? I, yeah, uh-huh. I thought of that one too. Um, you know, and that's one of the other things, right? I mean, it's one of the other things about, uh, you know, people with mental health issues are not, they're not dumb. They, right. they know and they can connect dots. Um, yeah. And I had, I had this, you know, this friend of mine. It's like, yeah, I told him that this was bad. He 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 went to Harvard. Like, I think he he, he knows. Like, <laughs> he, figured, he figured that out. So anyway, look, I think I think it's a hard thing to do, and I also think it's about fit. There's a million people out there doing interventions, um, and so I think it's important to have the right person for the right situation. I don't think any one person is right for all situations. And I don't think any one person has a magical solution. Um, so I think that's important. I mean, if anybody's looking to do that or, and there's been good things about the, that word intervention. One of the good things mm -hmm. is that their people are, okay, well, we can try to do something. One of the bad things is that they all want that 30 minute outcome. Um, they all wanna write right. a letter and they all, want, <laughs> they all wanna see them on a plane to Florida. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. really cool. That's a, that's a cool way to reframe that, that it's for the family and it's about setting boundaries. So one of the things that we always ask our guests is, as I told you, I think off air, this is heard a lot in recovery centers, in rehabs. Somebody's mm -hmm. got 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. They just got there. If you could give an actionable tip, something that they could start doing today that would help them, what would that be from you? um give yourself a break right don't it's not going to be easy um but you know give yourself a break in terms of thinking this is a health issue that you can learn to manage not you're a bad person that that fucked up um and i yeah. think it's really critical to stay in the moment Right. I mean, when humans are, when we're looking ahead, I don't know, I, I've never met an alcoholic who projects positively. Like I've never, you know, alcoholics are always project to death or despair or, you know, they are, it's yeah. never like, it's never like, you know what, I bet in five years, everything's going to be okay. You know, no alcoholic says that. Right? Yeah. So, um, 
and it's very hard to look back. You know, it's very hard to look at, oh, well, this or that or the other thing. So I think it's really, really important to just be, just be in today as much as you can. And I know that that's, that is a cliche, but it is true, especially early on, like just remind yourself, you know, you're in treatment, it's just another day. Every day yeah. that you gain distance in your recovery is a positive day. Those are all really good um, things that you're doing. And also I think let, it, it's hard, you know, mm -hmm. it's hard. It's not easy. It's not easy. Right. Um, right. And, you know, I mean, I tell people that um, like, well, no, it's, it's not easy to change your body. It's not easy to, um, to run a marathon or reach the next level of whatever weights you're lifting or, you know, all of that takes work. It all takes effort. You'll probably not do it perfectly. And um, so I think that that's really, really important to just be like, what are we really dealing with here? It's Tuesday. Right. I'm in my treatment center. <laughs> I'm going to group. I'm going to right. do the best I can. I'm going to have bad days, right? You know, I'm going to have bad days. And that's one of the things that I hear a lot from young people, especially is, well, what do you want for your recovery? Well, I want to be happy. Okay, well, you will some of the time. You'll be sad. Yeah. You'll be grief stricken. You'll be upset. You'll be a lot of things. Um, mm -hmm. So I think really the goal is I want to be complete and I want to be present and authentic for whatever life is going to throw at me, yeah. you know, much more than I want to be happy. I'm like, okay, okay, well, I'm a New Yorker. Uh, we're not, we're, we're just not happy people. You know? Well, California. Kim knows me also. Yeah. She's also a client at my studio where we're recording. I, I own a gym and yeah. it's funny when she says like, I know no alcoholics project positively. Have you ever heard me project positively? Fucking no. It's been six years and every Monday when I see her, I'm like, fuck. COVID, we're gonna go to business. <laughs> and like things are going really well. And I don't project positively either, for sure. Yeah. And I don't think I've ever heard anybody say, well, yeah, you're an alcoholic. That's your mindset. <laughs> um, but that makes sense. Right. So well, I mean, look, 25 years in, I don't project positively. I'm always projecting <laughs> to, you know, whatever disaster is around the corner. Um, totally. it's that's you know, good that's to just know though. part of the challenge. Yeah, yeah. 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 So where can, where can everybody find you, Joe? Plug all of your stuff. Where can people find you? My website, my personal website is denialends.com. Um, and that's pretty much a, uh, amalgamation of all my writing, all my videos, you know, so on and so forth. So if anyone's interested, I answer all emails. Um, so it's very easy to email me. Um, even if you're upset or angry with something I've said, that's okay. Um, I, you know, I respect feelings. I mean, I'm all for people, um, having them. <laughs> it's one of the things I tell, it's one of the things I tell these young guys is like, okay, it's, you're having a feeling you don't need to call your mother. <laughs> it's okay. You can have a feeling. Um, and then, you know, the podcast I think is, uh, with Amy Dresner, who a lot of, I don't, I don't know, um, uh, if, if anybody who's read her book, uh, My Fair Junkie, which is excellent, it's always uh, so. So, listen to the podcast. You know, we're happy to. We do a lot of riffing and we do a lot of irreverent. And I keep my sisters like, I can't. I'm not listening to this. And I'm like, Yeah, it's not for I, you. Hey, yeah, right. Rehab Confidential Guys is the name of their podcast. It's it's yeah. fascinating. It's 
yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's for people. It's not for, it's not for people who, uh, who it's for people in the culture. You know, it's yes. it's for our quirks, our eccentricities, our problems. It's for that. It's not for. Um, right. I would never be like, you know, go to a PTA meeting. Hey, I just want to let everybody know if you want to listen to my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's not. Yeah, that's kind of how we feel too about ours. Like, I own my gym. I mention it a little, but like not a lot, you know. So, because it's definitely catered towards, you know, where my heart is, which is that early recovery when you feel like you're such a failure, you know. So, keep advocating for us. I appreciate I'm, it. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think it's it's. Um, I don't know. It's one of the things. Like, I mean, all the years I lived in New York, I had a lot of like, you know, very wealthy lawyers and doctors and these dudes would be like well i make coffee I'm like really you make coffee how about a pro bono case for somebody in prison on some stupid drug charge like you know i'm always right. encouraging people to be more diverse in their service i think service is great and service is important for sure but you know civic responsibility is part of the deal and i think if people were more of that mindset um, it would change for people. And the truth is, if we could get to the Portugal model of it being handled by health ministry, not the legal, it would change. It would change a lot. Yeah. So, yeah. So are you, would you say, are you grateful that you were an alcoholic because it led you to this path in your life? I'm grateful that I'm an alcoholic. Um, I am. I mean, I'm grateful that I had the experiences that I had. I don't think I always was, you know, I used to be very angry and resentful about the, the drunk military, traumatized vet father, um, right. you know, all those kinds of things. I mean, we can always complain about the cards that were dealt, but uh, I love my, I love my journey. I think it's funny. I think it's, it's been an adventure. Um, there's still road to go as far as I know. I mean, um, and I don't think it, it, I think we should always be grateful for, for our lives and, you know, and what we get because it is who it makes us who we are. You know, every single experience is it's cumulative. We come together with, and, you know, even in all my frustrations about whatever happens, I always think, yeah, this, this is a funny story, you know. Yeah, I like totally. yeah, this. This story is interesting, you know. And I'm not a person who could have a. Uh, I'm just not one of those, you know. When people are like, undergrads, well, I'm going to be a lawyer. You are? How do you know that? Like, I, I mean, I have no idea what's going to happen. I don't know what's happening this afternoon. Like, how do you know what, <laughs> know what you're doing? I'm just not that person. I'm like, I'm much more like I'm walking the earth. We'll see what's next. I'm gonna do the best I can. So. so thank you so much yes, for you. for your time and for coming on. So that was Joe, guys. My favorite, favorite thing is when I hear from you guys about shows and you let me know what you thought and give me your feedback. So feel free to DM me directly at Chasing Heroin on Instagram or Janine Coulter, which is my Instagram, and connect with us there. You can connect with us on TikTok at Chasing Heroin. And in addition, I know we always ask you guys to rate and review us, which is super, super helpful. But also sharing the episode with friends is a great way to get the message out. You know, if you guys have any friends that you think would be interested, feel free to pass this along and let us know what you guys think. All right, we'll see you in a few weeks.